Good morning. How's everybody doing today? You're here. Very good. So am I. So let's get started with prayer. Most merciful Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for calling us as your people out of darkness into light. Thank you for the stories of, that everyone brings here today, the sins that they are repenting of, the struggles that they face, the uh, doubts and despair that are in their lives. And we ask that you help us see your word and the truth that's in it and take a good hard look at our lives in light of it so that we might see you more perfectly, see your glory on display, and give you all praise and honor. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was preparing for the lesson this morning, uh, one of the commentaries all of the guys have been consulting has been one by Dale Ralph Davis, and he has a ton of helpful stories in it. And he had one for this week as well. And I think it does a really good job of highlighting the main point of our passage today. And so he tells the story. He remembers hearing a children's story about this Christian woman who was destitute and just needing food. And so she prays out loud in her apartment that the Lord would provide some means of sustenance for her. And her neighbor, who didn't believe in God, heard the prayer and took it as an opportunity to poke some fun at her and have a little divine uh, humor at her expense. And so he ran down to the grocery store, bought a couple loaves of bread, came back up to the apartment, laid them at her door, and knocked on it. To which the woman opened the door saw the bread, and burst into spontaneous praise to her heavenly father for having provided for her. Now, at that point, the neighbor heard the prayer, popped out, and said to her, that wasn't your God, that was me. There's no God. I was the one who provided the bread for you. And she said, oh, no, oh, no. My heavenly father most definitely provided the bread. He just used the devil to do it. (laughs) (coughs) And the main point of our passage today, I think, at least one of the main points, is that the Lord's ways are so surprising. They are surprising to his people, but they are perfect in their providence. He's perfect in his providence. So let's go ahead and read our passage. It's 1 Samuel 29, verses 1 through 11. You've got handouts on the table if you just want to consult those, but 1 Samuel 29, starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to the battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? 
What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So our outline today is going to be broken up into three parts, and first we're going to consider David's dilemma, then we're going to look at the Philistines' surprising salvation, and we'll conclude with Yahweh's perfect providence in all of this. David's dilemma, the Philistines' surprising salvation, and Yahweh's perfect providence. So as a refresher, it's helpful to remember what we covered a couple weeks ago in chapter 27, because that sets the stage for this uh, interaction. So first, David has escaped from Saul's grasp for the last time in chapter 26, after being chased over and over by him. And he immediately turns inward on himself and his doubts and tells himself a very foolish story. And he convinces himself that he's going to die at Saul's hand. Even though Samuel has anointed David at the Lord's direction, even though God has given him victory upon victory in battle, including one at the beginning of our story over a certain Philistine champion from Gath, and even though Yahweh had blessed and promised to preserve him through Jonathan and Abigail's words to him in prior chapters, and even though the Lord had delivered David again and again, he's still convinced he's going to die at Saul's hand. So he says to himself, there is nothing better than for me to go over to the Philistines. And that's what he does. So he lives in 16 months in Ziklag and serves Achish, the king of Gath. We remember he leads raids on the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. And he returns to Achish with tribute from each of those raids, personally enriching the king. But he deceives Achish by telling him he had actually been leading raids on Judah and the lands of Israel. And he had slaughtered everyone with whom he came in contact so that his actions couldn't be figured out. A very cunning and clever plan, and not exactly the most honest portrait of David at this point in the story. But David's deception works really, really well. Achish now fully trusts David, and he tells David at the end of 27, in no uncertain terms, that David and his men will fight with him in the battle in the Philistine army, and that he's made... David, his bodyguard for life. So now we jump to chapter 29. And as Doug highlighted in uh, chapter 28, from chapter 28 last week, the clouds of war are gathering over the valley of Jezreel. And I've drawn the map here. I want to thank Doug for actually providing it in the handout. Hopefully you can make this out. But we've got Jezreel up to the north. And here's the valley of Jezreel off a a chute, a tributary off of the River Jordan. And the Philistines are marching up from here in the south, up the coast, and over to the valley. And so they're encamped here at Aphek, still a good deal from Jezreel at this point in the story. So we read that the Philistines have gathered their forces at Aphek as they march north. And so the troops are marching past at Aphek, all the commanders of the Philistines in their companies. And then here comes David with his men, with Achish in the rear. Now, think with me for just a second. Let's say you're a Philistine commander, and you're inspecting your troops for the coming battle. And you see the soldiers from Gaza march past, and you think, oh, here's a strong company. And then the warriors from Ashdod go by, and you think, these guys look like they're ready for battle. Things are looking up. 
And then the elite forces from Ekron and Ashkelon, they all pass by. And then in the rear, you see an interesting uh, sight in this parade. You see a prince of the Hebrews and the most infamous warrior of the army you're about to fight. And he marches past side by side with the king of one of your cities, all with his mighty men, his warriors in tow. So if you see that, all of your fighting force is ready to go, and then the most infamous warrior in the rear, what would be your thoughts as a leader or a commander of the Philistine army? Hopefully you all are thinking, is he insane? What is Achish doing? Why is this guy here? What on earth? He could undo the whole thing. Achish is nuts. And we've already seen Achish has proved that he's very gullible and very foolish. But he is thoroughly convinced of David's deception. But the Philistine commanders, not so much. They're strategically astute. They're practical men. And they don't like the idea of a bunch of Hebrews in the rear when they're getting ready to go fight with other Hebrews. So the author does two things here with Achish's reply when the Philistine commanders confront him. What do we read? Uh, How does he describe David? When Achish replies to the Philistine commanders, what is Achish's way of describing David? What do you see there? He says, this is David, servant of Saul, who is what? Okay. Now, if you're going to make your case for why David should be here, would you lead with the fact that he was the servant of the king you're about to fight? Again, that's nuts, right? So the author wants us to think about this for a second. By putting putting this first in the mouth of Achish, he wants us as the reader or the hearer to consider, what does this mean? Because to this point in the story, David has been totally unwilling to lift his hand against Saul, the Lord's anointed king. Even when Abishai tried to convince him in chapter 26 that here the Lord has given Saul into your hand, he said, I won't do it. I will not put out my hand and strike the Lord's anointed king. So the author at the very beginning wants us to reflect on that fact and what have David's intentions, his actions been to this point in the story. This is a real problem for David. How is he going to go into the battle with Israel's enemies to fight against the Lord's anointed king now and the people of Israel when he hasn't been willing to do it at all to this point in the story. Is David really likely to turn on Saul now? It's a good question. Further, we've been reading with the understanding for several chapters now that Saul's days are numbered, right? I mean, the the kingdom had already been torn from Saul's grasp, and then in chapter 28 we're told, you're going to die, right? So we know Saul's days are numbered. So what kind of reception would David receive We know he's going to become king. What kind of reception could he expect in Israel if the people see him fighting against them? What do you think? Not too good, right? The moment he takes the throne, he'd have a hard, he'd have a faction of hardline zealots who would be opposed to him and his kingdom for this apparent compromise, right? So it's it's not a good look from a political perspective, it's not a good look from a practical perspective. And his kingdom would be divided from the very beginning of his rule and reign. So what, what does Achish give as the evidence of David's fidelity to him? He leads with, this is the servant of Saul, king of Israel. But guys, trust me, he's going to be on our side. What does he give as the reason? Pardon? Fidelity. fidelity. But why? Why is he pointing to his fidelity? 
pastoral. He trusts him. So there's a time element and a motive element, right? The time element, he says, he's been with me days and years, which is an idiom meaning he's been with me a couple of years now, and he hasn't done anything against me. And then there's motive, too, saying, since he deserted Saul and came to me. So Achish is importing motive to David, saying, he deserted Saul. And that was 16 months ago, and he's been with me, and everything's been good all along. There's no reason for us not to trust this guy, even though I said what I just said at the very beginning. So Achish is very much convinced that David is on their side. And the author has emphasized a very real dilemma for David here, brought about by David's doubts and turning in on himself and leaning on his own understanding and acting out of that. David's gotten himself into a fine mess, potentially, politically, as well as now he may be forced to stick out his hand and strike Saul, or at least Israel's men. But as we'll see, the Lord's mercy here pursues David and shows up in a surprising way and will not let him go. So now let's consider the Philistine's surprising salvation. So Achish makes his plea, fully convinced of David's fidelity to him, saying, let's let him fight with us. And how do the commanders reply? What general emotion do they express? Disbelief. Disbelief. It also says there's a specific word in here. He is, they're angry. They're beyond incredulous. They are angry that this guy could be such a fool as they're getting ready to march out to battle. And so they tell Achish to send him back to Ziklag, far, far away from the fighting. So again, if you look at the map, they're in Afek. They're going up to the north to the Valley of Jezreel. And Ziklag is all the way down here. They're saying, get him out of here. Get him as far away from us as you can. We don't want him showing up as a fifth column in the army and undoing us from behind. So their rationale is that they don't want him uh, ruining their plans or coming in on the flank and, and beating them from behind and joining forces with Saul and the Israelites. He could reconcile himself to Saul by those means. And they also say they don't want him becoming an adversary. And this is the word Satan. They don't want him to be one opposed to them and bent on their utter destruction. And it's the same word that's developed by the biblical writers over time to point to the adversary par excellence, right? They're using this term to describe David as somebody who would go in, he's deceptive, he's sneaky, and he would undermine everything that they're working toward. So what better way to get back into Saul's good graces than to take a few of our heads as trophies? And there's a bit of humor here, because remember, whose head did David take at the beginning of his uh, story? The Philistine champion from Gath. And again, when uh, Achish says to him, I'm going to make you my bodyguard for life, it's actually a play on words where he says, I'm going to make you the protector of my head. And so now the Philistines... The commanders, who actually have some sense, say, we don't want him taking off our heads. We know what he's done, and we, the readers, can hear what the king had alluded to might happen. They don't want anything of it. <clears throat> so what do they appeal to to back up their fears of David's actual intentions and his actual motives if he were to join the fight? They cite something that's kind of popular lore in the area. What are they? Pardon? A song. They point to a song. So in chapter 1... We recounted uh, the song the first time David, sorry, chapter 21 is the first time that song was recounted after the initial showing when David fled to Achish in Gath. And his commanders at that time said, isn't this David? And they sing about him striking down his ten thousands. But the first time we heard of the song was again in chapter 18 
after returning home from killing Goliath. So the first time is when he defeated the champion in Gath. The second time he flees to Gath, and the commanders say, isn't this what they sing about him? And now they're bringing it up again a third time, saying, this is what they sing about the guy. It hasn't gone away. Even after 16 months, this is David's reputation in the land. So it's not just any song. It's a song showcasing what? In light of the fact that it was sung after he struck down Goliath, and when he fled to Achish and Gath the first time and was kicked out as a madman, and now here, what does this song showcase? Think through this. His track record, yeah. His fidelity to Saul, his trust in Yahweh, and his faithfulness to Saul, to Israel, to Yahweh. There's nothing to dissuade these commanders that that still doesn't apply even after a year and a half in Ziklag. So pause for a moment and further consider the last interaction between Saul and David. Um, It happened at the end of chapter 26, and these were the words. David says, as he comes out and says, I'm not going to put out my hand against you, Saul. And Saul says, I have sinned. David says, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And then Saul says, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and succeed in them. So if we're meditating on what the author has already put before us in chapter 26, David reminds us that the Lord rewards a man and for, sorry, David rewards a man for that man's righteousness and faithfulness. And we also come to the conclusion, or we see that David prays that his life would be precious in God's sight. David prays that his life would be precious in God's sight and that Yahweh would deliver him from all his troubles. And Saul blesses him in that request and prophesies that, in fact, he will be successful. So David reminds us that the Lord rewards a man for his faithfulness. He prays that his life would be precious and he'd be delivered. And Saul blesses him and prophesies that he will be successful. Keep that in mind and set that aside for just a second. So the Philistine commanders tell Achish, go and tell David and his men to take a hike. And Achish then relays the message. So let's kind of break this down just a little bit and do some observation. Who does Achish invoke at the beginning of the message that he relays back to David? Yahweh. Now remember chapter 27, the Lord was completely absent from the entire story. No mention of him. He's not in view. He's not consulted. No no motive was imported to him at all in chapter 27. And this is the only place God's name, his covenantal name, is mentioned as David's dealing with the Philistines and Achish. And we might expect that it would be David who uses Yahweh's covenantal, or the Lord's covenantal name, Yahweh. But it's not. Who is it? It's the Philistine king, Achish. Which, does that sound right? Does that sound right that in a story about David's faithfulness to the king of Israel that it's the Philistine king who actually invokes Yahweh and not Israel's champion. Something's kind of goofy here. It's a little shady sounding. So Achish goes on to say, you've been honest with me. Now at this point, the author wants you to laugh. Has David been honest with Achish at all? Not at all, not at all. He's been deceiving him this whole time. For the last 16 months, David has engaged in nothing but deception and kind of sleight of hand and been ruthless in his attempts to make sure that his secret doesn't get out. 
So because he's been so cunning and so ruthless, Achish finds no fault in him. So Achish tells him to depart in peace, go home to Ziklag, and that way he won't displease the lords of the Philistines. Now at this point, it looks like David has mercifully been spared from having to go out and fight against Israel, from having to choose whether or not he would actually have to strike at Saul and Israel's army. He's been relieved of his dilemma by the Philistine commanders. But does David breathe a sigh of relief, say, and go home? No. How does he respond? What have I done? He, He tries to justify himself and reinsert himself back into his own dilemma. And we're left thinking, what on earth is he doing? Like, he's off the hook. He, he can remain faithful. Why is he trying to stick himself back in this situation? Well, let's revisit that phrase, what have I done? David has said this two previous times in 1 Samuel. And every time he's done it, he has used it to declare his innocence. So in chapter 17, when he goes down to the battle with Goliath, and his brothers give him a hard time, he says to his brothers, what have I done? I'm just here bringing you some food. And I'm speaking up on behalf of Yahweh. And then in chapters 20 and 26, to protest any uh, charge of guilt or treachery on his part, both to Jonathan and to Saul, he said, what have I done? I have been blameless. I have been faithful to my lord, the king. But we know that he's clearly in the wrong with Achish, right? He's been faithful to Saul and Jonathan and Israel. He was faithful to his brothers and faithful to Yahweh at this point in the story. But we know he hasn't been faithful to Achish. So we're left wondering, is is the author invoking the memory of the battle with Goliath and his past fidelity to Saul and his house to highlight his faithfulness to Israel? Is it a genuine protestation of his innocence to Achish, which is laughable on the surface? Or is the author inserting that to say, Remember the last few times I've used this, what have I done? It has always been to declare my innocence. I have always been faithful to Israel. So David goes on to say, what have you found in me that I may not go out and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? That's a curious way of phrasing it, right? Now when we first read this, it sounds like David is making the case to fight for Achish, his Lord these last 16 months, and the King of Gath. But we have to remember that he has deceived Achish from day one, and he has never lifted his hand against Saul. He has only ever been faithful to his lord, the king of Israel, to this point in the story. And in chapter 27, when Achish ordered David to join him in the fight against Israel, do you remember David's reply? Very well. You'll know what your servant can do. Is that not a vague statement with a sense of foreboding? He doesn't commit that he's actually going to serve Achish. He says, very well, you'll know what your servant can do. Well, what will his servant do? Will he actually support Achish in the fight and finally stretch out his hand against Saul to take the throne? Or will, in fact, he turn on the Philistines and be consistent with his behavior to that point? It's a good question. But we're left with a direct and distinct impression that despite his cunning and ruthlessness and deception in chapter 27... And his leaning on his own understanding, while Yahweh is nowhere in view, which got him into this dilemma in the first place, he remains faithful to the Lord's anointed king and the Lord's people. So David, leaning on his own understanding and cunning, is making his case to go back into the battle and fight for his Lord, the king. Which would mean 
if he's still remaining faithful to Saul and Israel, that it's not Achish whom he will serve and the Israelites who are his enemy, but it's Saul he will continue to serve, and it's the Philistines who are, in fact, his enemy. As Proverbs 19 tells us, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purposes of the Lord that will prevail. So David clearly has his plans. We think the author is kind of tipping his hand to what those might be in a very sophisticated way. This is beautiful literature. But we have to ask then, if these are David's plans, and we know the Philistines' plans to send him home, what are the purposes of Yahweh in this story? Do we know what the outcome of this battle will be? We do. We do. As Doug shared last week from chapter 28, when the witch of Endor called up Samuel, Samuel prophesied to Saul that he and his sons would die and that Israel would be given into the hands of the Philistines in this battle. So it's important now to kind of call out the timing of this story between Achish and the commanders of the Philistines and Achish and David because the author's kind of been jumping around in the timeline of events the last few chapters. This is not linear or sequential here. So Saul consults with the witch of Endor on the eve of battle. So this is maybe a week or so in the future. But David and Achish's exchange occurs a week prior as they're marching. They're still at Aphek, quite a ways from Jezreel. So we are kind of jumping forward with Saul's story and then jumping back with David's. So do we know how the story will end? We do, right? We know what's going to happen. But does David know at this point the outcome of the battle with the Philistines? He doesn't. He does not know. And we don't fully know David's intentions, but we think we do, given his past track record. So the question remains, will he serve Achish or will he remain faithful to Saul? What are David's intentions? And is he, again, leaning on his own understanding, which would be consistent with the last couple of chapters? So remember now David and Saul's exchange at the end of chapter 26, where David said, Yahweh rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. Could it be that David has that in mind, and he thinks, if I'm faithful, I will be rewarded. If I'm faithful, I can spare myself from that dreaded outcome at Saul's hand. And David had prayed that the Lord would deliver him out of all of his tribulations, not just from Saul, not just in Ziklag, not just in the Philistine territory, but all of, the, all of his troubles, all of his tribulations. And Saul blessed him and said, the Lord will grant you favor and you will find much success. You will do many things, David, and you will succeed in them. The author then has presented us with a very different dilemma altogether. Think about this with me. Because if the Philistines allow David to go down into the battle, and Yahweh rewards David's faithfulness with success in the battle, as we're told he likely would experience, then the Lord's faithfulness to David will be in direct opposition to his revealed will of judgment on Saul and on Israel. That's a problem that certainly David can't fix. I don't think Saul can fix it. But what's a problem for man is not a problem for the Lord. And this is where the author of Samuel wants us to stop and meditate on the remarkable, perfect providence of God. Because Yahweh uses the same unlikely instrument in this story, the Philistines, to execute his revealed judgment on Saul and Israel, while at the same time, unknowingly to them, delivering his faithful servant, David. Perfectly fulfilling his promises, both to David and his declared judgment on Saul. Truly, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are the Lord's ways higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than ours. So what's interesting, if we stop and consider the whole of redemptive history here, 
step back from this passage of Scripture and in conclusion, just look at the whole of redemptive history. We see Yahweh's perfect providence at work in a similar way in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's at the cross of Christ that we see the Lord's justice and his deliverance brought together in a surprisingly singular instrument. To quote Paul, who was referencing Isaiah 29, it's in the cross of Christ that we see the wisdom of God, a wisdom that destroys the wisdom of the wise and sets aside the cleverness of the clever. Kind of describes some characters in our story here today, doesn't it? And it's through the cross of Christ that Yahweh rewards his righteous, faithful servant and reveals the life of his beloved as precious in his sight. And it's the message of the cross that is the power of God to those who are being saved, but foolishness to those who are perishing. So how best can we apply that truth to our lives here today? As I was preparing for this lesson, I listened to a sermon by Alistair Begg, which was immensely helpful in bringing some of these points to light. But in that sermon, toward the end, he stated, when we understand the way that this is the unfolding drama of God's purposes, not only for the kingly rule of Israel, but for his ultimate plan, for all of time, for all of the world, and the one who is the ultimate king, we realize that God is not and never is a bystander in an unfolding drama like this. It seemed in chapter 27 that God was nowhere on the radar. In chapter 28, Saul is completely void of any kind of dependence on Yahweh. Again, nowhere in view. And in chapter 29, the only one one who even invokes the name of Yahweh is the Philistine king. But that does not mean that God is a bystander in these events. But he is perfectly orchestrating everything to carry out his purposes and his perfect will. And this fact is true of you and me. If we consider the similarities between David's story here and our own lives, I don't know if this is true for you, but as I was reflecting on this, I could certainly check the box for every one of these categories. Perhaps you've told yourself a story that isn't true, but you've convinced yourself of it and gotten yourself in trouble because you acted on that. Has that ever happened? Or maybe your time of trouble is a long season of suffering, suffering, whether it feels like 16 months or is, in fact, longer. Maybe you're presently going through it, and there doesn't appear to be any end in sight. Or maybe you've leaned on your own understanding, and as you do so, it seems your plans, whether it's with your family or with your job or with something else, your plans seem frustrated at every turn, and people seem set against you. We need to remind ourselves of the nature of God. His providence is perfect. He delivers his servants by surprising means at just the right times. His mercy pursues us just as it pursued David, even when we continue to make a mess of things acting from our own understanding. And when his deliverance arrives at just the right time, it's meant to spur us to praise him for his surprising glory and grace. Truly, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Uh, I referenced Alistair Begg, as he often does. He quoted from a hymn near the close of his sermon on this message, and I'd like to do that here. It's a hymn by William Cooper. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. 
His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. May we believe that truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the difficult word that sometimes causes us to have to stop and think and wrestle with what you're doing and how you can satisfy your purposes for your beloved, for your people in history, and still bring judgment. We see that no more clearly than at the cross of Christ. We thank you for his life, death, and resurrection. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit that you poured out on us for all those who believe and trust in your anointed King. And we ask that you strengthen us and encourage us and help us even when the times see dark. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Do you have any questions about this passage or as I stumbled over my words, anything that I left unclear? No? For giggles... If you want to do just a little bit more meditation and reflection later today, there's nothing in the text and nothing really in the commentators that would suggest Psalm 139 was in uh, Psalm 139 was written with this in view. But if you consider all the circumstances, David's depression, God being far off, him fleeing from Israel to the Philistines, trying to seek a deliverance from all.